We will be reading in God's Word now in Acts chapter 2. We begin in verse 38 and we read to the end of the chapter, verse 47. Acts 2, beginning in verse 38. In response to the question that Peter's audience had when he preached the word to them in the day of Pentecost, they asked, what shall we do? And verse 38 continues, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward or crooked generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together, and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. May God bless the reading and the further preaching of His own word shortly. Dear congregation, um, we find ourselves in in this last portion of chapter 2. It is helpful to remember that this sermon of Apostle Peter did, did not come in just a simple um, way. This was the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had come. The great rushing sound of the wind had blown through at least that portion of Jerusalem. The disciples began to speak in different languages The crowds that were all gathered together because it was a day of Pentecost. It was a lot more people in Jerusalem than usual. The crowds, in their curiosity, in their amazement, they started to gather around. And what Peter does, this sermon that he preaches, is explaining what they were seeing. It explains why they were speaking in tongues. It explains why the rushing wind. It explains that the Holy Spirit was the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus gave. But that wasn't the only promise. There was also the promise of salvation for all who called on the name of the Lord. And Jesus was the Lord whose name they were to call upon. 
and also the promise of the remission of sins if they would repent. And remember, they, they couldn't even wait till the end of the sermon and they were begging Peter to answer what they were supposed to do. What shall we do? And Peter answers them. And so he, he continues the sermon by answering their questions. And he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He continued saying, The promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. This sermon and the response to this sermon continues in a sense, even today. We, we are those who are far off in regards to what Peter was saying in that day. So, so that the promise is still to you and to your children. And even here we could say, and to all who are far off, where, where there may be some here that might go somewhere further off. And you can take this promise and declare it to those souls there as well. It just keeps going on and on. It is, it is an element of the eternality of the Word of God. There's a few more things to speak of, though. We, we did last Lord's Day speak of the baptism. We spoke even of the repentance. We spoke of the promise that it's unto you and to your children, that, that it's well meant to every soul who would hear it. But we need to bring something that is very weighty here in the heart of Peter. As he brings this, as we continue to read, he says in in verse 40, it says, And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. It means a crooked generation, and therefore it is implied in the text, and with everything in God's word we understand this, there will be judgment. So that there's clearly here an element of urgency. And yet as we continue reading, we see there's an element of gladness and of joy. And so this is why the theme of our message today is repentance and gladness together. And we could also see as a theme today, repentance and its fruits. Because joy is is present as a very fruit of repentance. It's sad to think that many people don't like the theme of repentance because rightly so, repentance is about sorrow. It is about a feeling sad. It is about grieving about our sins. And in the human heart you think, well, I want gladness and I want joy. I don't want to be there just crying and weeping about sins. That, that's a hard thing to do. It, it hurts to feel guilty is not healthy. It's not good. And yet, God's Word is showing here that true repentance is all about true joy and true gladness and true wonder and true amazement. It coexists with repentance. And not just that, it is a fruit of repentance to the point where you will not experience true joy and gladness and happiness in the best sense of those words unless you repent. Because what you're turning away from is sin. And sin will never usher in gladness. That's a sad thing that we're living in today. There are people who are going headlong into sin because they insist that that's what will make them happy. 
And yet it's the complete opposite. They're rushing into destruction. They're running away from the God who will give him, give them all the gladness that they would ever desire. And they're rushing into destruction. See, we, we live among an untoward generation, a crooked generation. There will be judgment. And, and so the first thing to talk about is this urgency that is in the text. The urgency and the joy will be our first point. And then we'll look, secondly, at the communion of believers. That will be to a certain degree. Um, I'll explain why we won't go in depth there today, or at least in the morning. And then thirdly, we'll look at the peace and the growth of the church. There we still see the elements of the gladness, the elements of the joy through the elements of peace, not only in the church, but even outside of the church, toward the church, as we find in the text. So first of all, the urgency. Now I did speak about repentance last Lord's Day, but it's important that we realize that Repentance was not something, and Peter here is not saying, listen, repent, and you are left to your own convenience of when you feel it is more comfortable to repent. That's not what Peter is doing. In fact, he's doing the complete opposite. You know, it's, it's encouraging that the very people have a sense of urgency. And, and Peter doesn't calm them in their sense of urgency. He, he only works upon that sense of urgency. And you could say he adds to the sense of urgency. He, he, he speaks in terms of life and death. He says, save yourselves from this untoward generation. The text has words that show the element of the urgency. And I want to walk through some of these words. The first word is the word testify. It says, with many other words did he testify. See, he's not just communicating in a, in a neutral way. He is testifying, and the word testifying speaks of a witness of a witness who is there laboring to show that what he's speaking of is something true. It is something that, that needs to be evidenced. And, and I am one who has seen that, yes, this man whom you have crucified, he resurrected. He is the Lord whom you must call to be saved. And the fact that you saw the rushing wind and were speaking in different tongues is a proof that he is in heaven ruling, that his word was fulfilled, that he is the Messiah. So he's the one whom you're to call on, whom you're to believe. He's testifying. That speaks of, of something sober and solemn. It's urgent. The second word is in that same phrase. So, with many other words did he testify and exhort. The word exhort here, um, it comes from the same root as we find that root, that word for the Holy Spirit. Remember, not too long we were speaking of the Holy Spirit from John, and we saw that title of comforter, um, which comes from the Greek paraclete. So the word paraclete is connected to that word here that's translated exhort. So it brings the idea of, of a calling to one side, because he's wanting to explain to them something very specific. And it has here a calling to one side with the sense of beseeching that they would listen. There is in the Greek another word for asking that's just very neutral, you could say. The word I tell, 
means to ask, means to request. It can even mean to beg. So Aitel has a sense of normalcy, but yet it can have a sense also of a little more strength. Think of a beggar, right? When he comes to ask you for something, he's not just saying, please, as a matter of fact, give me some money. He's begging. There's, there's a sense of need, even in the word Aitel. But here it's the word parakaleo. And this word means to implore. So when he exhorts, he is imploring. He is beseeching. He is pleading as if their life depended on it because it did. And with many other words that he testify, he had witnesses to make it an evidence to show that it's true. And he implored, he exhorted, he beseeched. And beloved, this, this is something that weighs heavy in my heart because I understand that as a preacher, it, it is an onus on me to communicate to you the essence of this reality. Be, and, and especially because we, we race against a community, even among the evangelicals, which has this mindset that we are here and everything is fine and let's just have a party And yet we find the preachers of God's word and they have this sense of your soul will die. There is judgment. There is hell. Are you ready? And this is the heart of Peter. They are asking what they must do. Peter is telling them what they must do. Repent. Save yourselves. And that's the next phrase. He says, he testifies, he exhorts saying, save yourselves. Save That's to obtain salvation. It means to obtain deliverance from danger. So the very word save means there is danger. And you need deliverance from that danger. See, if if you don't get this deliverance, you're going headlong into that danger. You're just going right into it. Um, um, This word can be used, of course, just the idea of of a material and temporal deliverance from danger, from sickness, from, from, from a suffering of a certain kind. But used spiritually, it is spiritual and eternal deliverance that is being told these people that they need. Deliverance. You could say then from the bondage of sin or deliverance from the curse of the law, deliverance from the judgment of God, deliverance from the wages of sin, which is death, deliverance from eternal punishment. See, Peter understands this is all that is there ahead of you if you don't believe the Lord Jesus. And and this is so important. There's a solemnity here in this way. Peter doesn't just say repent. He uses, you could say, at least four or five different ways how this response is to be met. And they're they're not just different ways to do it. They, They all are explaining what faith is, what embracing Christ in a saving way is. Well, he he mentioned it in his sermon in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So calling on the name of the Lord is one of the ways to respond to this message. You call, you pray, you plead, ask, Lord, save me. 
And then he uses the word repentance. When they ask what to do, he says, repent and be baptized. But see, these are not two different things. This is how you repent. You call upon the name of the Lord. And then we find in the text in verse 41, then they that gladly received his word. So that's what it means to repent and to call on the name of the Lord. It is to receive the word. That's why sometimes it is said, receive the Lord Jesus in your heart. You know, some people have criticized that phrase because they say, well, that phrase exactly is not in the Bible. But you need to understand that certainly the well-meaning preachers who may say that, they are using biblical um, um, emphases here. Those who received His Word. What is His Word? His Word was to call on the name of the Lord. So to say you must receive Christ as a Savior is not wrong. It is what you must do. You must embrace Him. You must receive Him. You must acquiesce with your heart. He is the Savior. And trust in Him. And that's faith. And look what we read in verse 44. And all that believed were together. So those who call are those who repent and are those who receive and are those who believe. These are not four different themes. They are all in the same. This is what true faith does. You believe. You receive. You call. You repent. And, and, and this is in the text. See, it's, it's not necessarily Peter even in his speaking. This is Luke saying what Peter was doing. And it's just showing the urgency of the matter even for any audience like today. Beloved, have you understood this? That, that you are not supposed to take the gospel message in a sense where you are the one who decides when to call, when to repent, when to believe, when to receive. No, God's word is saying this is urgent. And, and let me impress upon you with other elements of God's word. There are three things to consider. One is this, time is running out. Right now, the clock is ticking. It is running out in two ways. Your days will one day end, and Christ Jesus will one day return. Both of those are a mystery to you and to me. There may be someone who even receives from the doctor, you have two weeks to live, but someone perfectly healthy will cross the street and die before that person. Or, Jesus may come before we have a meal today. Time is running out. And God's Word makes this very clear. And again, this is where the onus is, beloved. Not just on the preacher, but even on the Christian. We must go around this world and our family impressing upon their hearts. They do not have all the time in the world to repent, to believe, to call, and to receive. God's Word even says when that should be done. Look, Romans 13, 11, And that knowing the time, 2,000 years ago, Paul said, the time that now is at high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. And you might say, well, well Paul was just um, making them feel too scared because until now the time has not come and the world has not ended, but all those people to whom Paul preached are dead and gone. 
John 9, 4, I must work the works of Him that sent me. Jesus said this, While it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. The Lord Jesus spoke in a way helping us realize time is running out. We will no longer be able to go to certain places and evangelize because it will turn into night. That means the world will end. He, he said this in Revelations 3.11. This is the Lord Jesus there in Revelation. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. And in chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord Jesus said, For the time is at hand. See, we have a false sense that we have a long time. But it's not true. The time is short. Matthew 24, 42 through 44. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Here it's in the sense of the coming of the Lord. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. So, beloved, even if, if we're not about to die, we're, we're still supposed to be thinking, Jesus might come any moment. The time is short. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6-2, Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You know, stop to think in terms of your reality your conscious reality right this very moment as you hear this sermon is the only moment that you have an element of a guarantee that as you hear me proclaim with Peter, repent, that if you do and repent and you go to the Lord, you call upon Him, you trust in Him, that you're saved and you're fine. You do not have that certainty five minutes from now. This is why God's Word says now is the day of salvation. And and this has been the course of history before Paul even wrote this 700 years prior. In Isaiah, we find Isaiah saying, chapter 55, 6, Seek ye the Lord while ye may be found. Call ye upon Him while He is near. Now, why is this sense of urgency very real, even if, yes, Christ has not come for thousands of years? And some people look at that and say, see, this is just making people afraid. Well, 100% of all people living in the past have died. 65 million people died last year. This is the number of deaths per year, 65 million, roughly. See, for, for those many people, time has ended. It amounts to 178,000 deaths per day in the world. There are around 120 people dying every single minute. See, for every single soul, time is running out. And the reality that you and I, we we do not know when our time will come. This urgency is of the essence. And beloved, even if you say, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm fine. Yes, but do you pass on this urgency to others? 
And so I'm pressing upon your heart as well that you would, along with me, have this sense of urgency. We need this as we bring it to others so that we would testify like Peter, so that we would exhort, so that we would tell our neighbors, you must, you must save yourselves from this crooked generation. You need Christ. And Christ is a Savior. Come to Him. So that's the first thing. Time is running out. The second thing that makes this message so urgent, repentance is urgent, is the reality that punishment is eternal. Add to the fact that our time is running out. Beloved, people who die without Christ have eternal punishment forever and ever and ever. Beloved, that's one thing, again, that we need to press upon our hearts Deeply, because losing track of that is what makes us feel, even if our time is running out, it's all not so bad. Yes, it is for souls who die without Christ. There is absolutely no more hope. Hebrews 9.27 And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment... And beloved, we cannot be like those in the world who try to wish death away and they wish eternity away, at least the punishment part. They keep hoping that it will be a bliss. Christians know better. We need to have that before our hearts so that we would weep in pleading for our loved ones and our neighbors that they would come to Christ. While we live, we have the precious opportunity to turn to Christ, to repent, to call upon His name, to receive the word with gladness, to believe. And when you do so, you are saved forever. But if you don't, and you die, or Christ returns, the time is out. Eternal punishment ensues. And the third element of urgency, this is a blessed one, but it's also one that often we're not thinking of much. It's not only the punishment is eternal, but the reward is also eternal. God's word very clearly wants you to know, dear believer, that serving him and even the more you serve him, there will be a greater crown or a greater reward. I I can literally say this. I do not understand the extent of what this reward is. If If you will receive this literal crown that we will then place upon the glassy sea um, with those elders, we don't understand the details of these rewards. But let me read these verses that show this. And, and the way it should encourage an unbeliever is to think, wait, I'm an unbeliever. I have none of those rewards. And I'm losing time in this world whereby I could serve the Lord and therefore have these rewards. See, this is the reality that we need to think of that God's word really wants us to understand. 
Now think of how sad the life of someone who lived 70 years and then he becomes a Christian and only serves the Lord for two more and then he dies. It's only those two years where he will have those good works that will amount to the rewards. And God does have the intention to motivate our hearts to say, no, I want in the youth of my age to begin serving the Lord because I want a reward that is greater. Because you know what we'll do with those rewards that we find in the Word? It's what we give to the Lord. It all amounts to His glory. And that's what should make us eager to have them. Look at Matthew 5.12. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. The very implication of this verse shows that some will be rewarded more than others because not everyone is persecuted. But Jesus is saying, if you're being persecuted, you will be rewarded even like the prophets were. Look at Luke 6, 23. Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. Revelation 22, 12. And behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. And this is one of the key verses that gives me the authority to say that not all of us will receive the same reward, but based on how you have served the Lord, that reward will be greater. It will come in the hands of Jesus when He comes back. Philippians 3.14, this is why Paul says, I press, I, says this, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Another passage, Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. So we find Jesus in Matthew having said this, so during His life here, and in Revelation after He's in heaven, reminding us that there are eternal rewards. And this brings an urgency. Are you serving the Lord right now whereby these rewards are growing? This life before heaven is the only opportunity to be serving in such a way so that you receive these rewards that Christ is bringing. So there's an urgency to repent. See, if you're not a believer today, those rewards are not in line. You're losing time. You convert. And those rewards begin. We are thankful for every conversion. Even deathbed conversions. But you understand and you agree with me. That's a sad reality to live your whole life. And only have a few minutes to serve the Lord. There's still heaven. There is still the eternal reward Jesus told the thief that he would be with him in, in the Father's house. But you, you, you see what I under, you understand what, what I'm trying to say. When you think of the reality of how it pleases the Lord to serve him, when you think of the reality of, of, of how glorified God is in even giving these rewards. If, if your mind were to grasp right now even the quantity or the quality of these rewards, it would motivate you. It would make you think, I am wasting time. I want to serve the Lord. 
You know, this is, this is if I could put it this way, an, an ambition that you can have. I'm not talking about money in the bank here in the world, but a reward in heaven eternally. And God's word actually woos us to yearn for this reward. And it's a reward that's not going to make you sin in this world. It's only going to make you holy in this world. Because you understand this reward is by being a servant. It's by being a Christian. It's by being like Jesus. It's by being happy. It's by being full of joy, full of yearning that others would know about Jesus. It's only going to make you holier. Not sinful and selfish. It's a holy ambition to yearn for this reward. Because you understand it's a reward that glorifies Him. So these are the three elements that I can bring to you. The time is running out. Eternal judgment is coming. But the reward is eternal as well. May God use this to to bring the urgency to your own heart in, in becoming a Christian if you're not one and serving the Lord as a Christian if you are one. But then the gladness still. I've spoke of the repentance. Now let's speak just a few words about the gladness because you see that they are together. Um, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized. These people who are repenting, they're not living their lives in sorrow and morbidity. They are gladly receiving the word. And then you look at their lives in verse 42. This is what we'll speak of in our second point. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. This, This is a very glad kind of life. They are together. They are doing things. They are in fellowship. They're providing for one another. We'll read this in verse 44. And all that believed were together and had all things common. There's no one that's falling through the cracks because they have sympathy. They have concern. They have love. And then in verse 46, it says, And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Beloved, isn't it, isn't it precious to think? Here, he spoke of repentance. There's the danger of hell. There's the sadness that we've grieved God. And we're supposed to weep. We're supposed to be full of sorrow. But when we do this, when we look to Jesus as our Savior, and we confess our sins, there will be gladness and love and community and fellowship. If you are in need, someone will sell something to provide it for you. And then when you have something, you sell it to provide for someone else. That's what the church was doing. That's a very happy kind of life. But it started with repentance. And so this is why I say urgency and joy of repentance. And now secondly, the communion of believers. And right here, all I want to do is speak not so much of the activities that they were doing, because in our Afternoon service, this is what we're going to do. We're going to continue seeing. We've begun seeing what the church is and what the church does. And we arrive here at a passage that says a lot of things the church does. These are very important things because this is the very beginnings of the church. And we find them doing all these things, being in the doctrine of the apostles, breaking of bread, um, prayers. We'll look at all of those this afternoon. But what I want to stress this morning, and I'm even though there may be some parallels in both sermons, I'm thankful I have two because we, we can't fit them all in one. And what I want to emphasize right now, since I'm emphasizing more elements of the heart, is emphasizing exactly how they did these things. 
The last thing you have in your mind is that they were kind of in a line of sadness going to a prayer meeting because their arms were twisted that they had to do it. And you you don't see here little children thinking, oh no, again I need to go to house of such and such to break bread. You don't gather any of this. There's nothing of, of of a cold religion. It is nothing of a ritualistic formalism. Look at the phrases that show this. In verse 42, they continued steadfastly. This means, it's two words in English, but it's just one word in the Greek. It's to to be earnest in what they were doing. It was to be constantly diligent. It's not only the idea of diligence, but even of a constancy. Um, Because you can be diligent to do one thing, but to do the second and the third and the fourth, you need a constancy in your diligence. See, that's what this word means. To, To attend assiduously, to be devoted to in an ongoing way. If there's one word, since it's one word in Greek, if we could find one word in English that would translate it well, would be perhaps the word persevere. They persevered in doing it. They kept on doing it. They, just did, they didn't just do it. They didn't just participate. But they were loving while they did it. And then the next phrase that's very similar, but it adds the reality to it, verse 46, they continuing daily. In verse 46, there's another list of what they were doing. And there's that phrase, continuing daily. That is part of the same word, but it does add the daily to it. So not only were they um, continuously doing, the word daily shows it it was all the time. It was every day. Um, Granted, I I do believe as the church matured and, and it became kind of impractical to be every day at the temple and every day from house to house breaking bread and, and every day perhaps a prayer meeting and every day praising. But we should look at the early church and see them with that earnest and, and pray that we would be somewhat influenced by that. And, and the way I think of it is we, we, we have a monthly prayer service. Can we say that we are continuing steadfastly in corporate prayer? Even someone who comes every month to the prayer service should say, I, I'm not continuing steadfastly. That, well, I'm continuing monthly, yes, steadfastly. But you see what I mean? It, brings, it should bring an urge in the heart of the church. Let's find more times to pray. And to praise. And there is something of that in our hearts. We, we, we kind of decided we couldn't have the hymn sing. It's, that's an added, added time to sing. And, and what happened in some hearts? Well, where are we going to fit that? We need a time where we sing together beyond just our services. Beloved, those are healthy things. That's the heartbeat of the Christian. They are always looking for ways to praise especially. to Remember we saw last Lord's Day in the afternoon, worship was a great activity of the church. Most of these words that we would say of their activity is worship. But of coming together in fellowship and times for prayer, we should have a desire to yearn for more and more. And again, this is an ambition that is good. 
not evil. We do have to be careful, of course. Then there are churches who start having so many activities, and if you be involved in all of them and you're not taking care of your family, there's a balance to everything. But we should have this heartbeat of steadfastness, of earnestness, of desire, of love for communion. So that's our second point, the communion of the believers. It was intense. It was eager. It was continuous. And it was in unity. And I'll speak more of some of these details this this afternoon. But thirdly, and lastly, we'll look at the peace and the growth of the church. Well, the peace we see in these very elements, that there was peace inside um, this, this unity. Verse 46, it says, And they continuing daily with one accord. That's an element of the peace inside the church. We're going to see a word that speaks of the church having peace with those outside the church. But I want to say something about this word with one accord. Um, they, they were together. They have the same desire. It's like they were having the same idea. Let's meet at the temple. Yes, you know, I was wanting to do that too. What about breaking bread in my house today? Yes, in my house tomorrow. And, oh, and, and I'm hearing the conversation, my house the next day. And they, their ideas were, were similar because they, they wanted togetherness. They had just heard of Christ. They were together at the cross, perhaps. They were together in denying Jesus. Now they felt guilt together. They repented to, together. They called the same Lord. They embraced the same gospel. In the heart of the church, they have this sense, we belong together. The same blood forgave our sins. You, know, you were a sinner and I was a sinner together, but now we're a saint together. The price paid for your soul was the same price paid for my soul. See, those are the thoughts that are overtaking the church. And they are now of one accord, that peace. But then another one, it says um, in verse... They ate their, their meat with gladness. Let me, let me find exactly the verse I'm looking for here. Where it says, and, and that they ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. The very second word after gladness. Because verse 42 and 46 are very similar. But 46 is gladness and then singleness of heart. I want to say a few words about the word singleness of heart. This, this is a word translated singleness of heart because it was one of the um, words the translators thought of. But it comes from something very physical. The opposite of this word in Greek means a rough stone that you may stub your toe kind of idea. So that the word translated singleness of heart is the idea of a smooth stone that you walk upon and it doesn't hurt you. That, that was the word to describe the heart of the church. They were not like people who were stubbing each other's toes, 
They were like people who were like smooth stones to one another. No one was hurting one another. No one was harming one another. No one was like an obstacle in the path of another. But they were harmonious. You know, the word of a smooth stones brings the idea of harmony, brings the idea of peace. That's how the church was. And because of the Holy Spirit. And Luke is very realistic. He's not going to sugarcoat what's happening. He's not meaning that the church was perfect. We will arrive at the chapter where Ananias and Sapphira are harshly disciplined by the Lord. And before that happens, we we will, not before, but then later we're going to hear also of that grumbling and complaining that, that was going on. And that the church was growing so much. There were some people not receiving help. So I'm not here to say that everything was perfect in the ancient church. But I am reading God's word saying what was in the heart of these believers. A heart of harmony. Beloved, then the way you can apply is ask the Lord that of your part you may be a smooth stone, as it were, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask yourself if you are being rough in any way, making it hard for anybody. Maybe even making it hard for someone to come to you and ask forgiveness or, or ask you that you should ask forgiveness. The true believer wants to be smooth, harmonious, full of peace with one another. But this peace was also with those outside. And again, it won't always be this way, but it can and it may. And look what we read in verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And and commentators agree that this all the people is not just favor among them, but favor with those outside of the church. The word favor here is the idea of gratitude. The the people who were unbelievers at this period at time, they were looking at this new development and they were grateful for it. That's the idea because the word favor means the idea of gratitude. They they were thankful for their existence. They they were appreciating that this was happening. There was a mystery about it. There were some staying far away. There were some who perhaps were critical, and yet they looked at it and they said, you know, it, it's, it seems good. You can imagine what was happening. Maybe some of them were beneficiaries of the benevolence that was overflowing from the church. Or maybe they had a relative who was very poor. They, they had never really helped him, but now that that relative became a Christian, he's being well provided for. And this person is saying, well, good, I'm, I'm glad. I, I, I kind of feel guilty I didn't help him so much, but now I'm glad that he's being helped. You know, a lot of those things were happening. We, we have 3,000 people here who have their own relatives outside of the body of the church, and there's this sense of gratitude. Now, stop to consider how this is our experience as well. We are living days, we could say maybe the last seven years or so, The tensions have been rising between those outside of the church and the church. We we all see this. But see, the very fact that we see this proves that before those years, things were relatively peaceful. And we can remember days in which the government, society, 
and people who perhaps were outside of the church, they were at least favorable to the church. And they were at least grateful. We still find people with that kind of heart towards the church or towards Christianity. And, and some people that I meet, you can tell they're, they're sad with the extremists, they'll say. But they're thankful for those who are more balanced as Christians. And sometimes when they say balanced, they're including people that we would say, well, they have crossed a line. But when you show a certain respect, when you show that you love them and you show that you're open to conversations, they say, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for that. We still encounter that today. And it was happening in those days. Now, even Acts, we realize it won't stay this way. It won't be this way all the time. But it's possible. And there are times in which the church experiences this favor. And then lastly, the growth. It's the very last word of the chapter. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Here again, we see the balance in God's word. I mentioned all those words that the text tells you and me to understand what it means to repent. It means to call. It means to believe. It means to accept, receive the message gladly. But in no way, shape, or form are we to think that this derives from a power within our own hearts. It is the Lord who is adding to the church. So that's one thought the sovereignty of God alongside the responsibility of man that God has given as a means to save us. And it's not that we have the strength, but these are things we must do all through His strength. But the second thought is this. Think of the dynamic. The text is filled with the activity of the church. And, and, and the word evangelism is not in the text, but, but we see the people outside responding Favorably, So obviously Christians are relating to non-Christians and, and the message of the gospel is going forth. This is what Peter is doing. So, so we find the church busy in preaching, in praying, in praising, in eating together, in partaking of the Lord's Supper that would be part of what this means, that they're breaking bread, very likely. They, they are sharing one another's needs So they're financially caring for each other. This is the busyness of the church. And what is God doing? He does what only He can do. He adds to the church. We cannot add, but we can worship. And even when we worship, we need, of course, God's strength to do it. But it's something we we can put ourselves to do. We, We cannot save others utterly incapable of doing that, but we can provide for others financially and and help them in their needs. We we cannot give the increase to the church, but we can pray. We we can come to a prayer meeting. We can come to a prayer service. We can meet with one another in our homes and plead and pray for the salvation of souls. And so the church is doing, was doing the things that it was supposed to do, and God, the very creator of the church, was doing what only He can do. And I, and I rephrase, not, not rephrase, but I reemphasize everything the church is doing is out of the strength that God gives the church to do. And I just want to end with, with an illustration, more a quote of Dietrich Bonhoeffer on Pentecost when he was in prison. He wrote 
in a letter to his parents this. At the Tower of Babel, all the tongues were confounded. And as a result, men could no longer understand one another as they all spoke different languages. This confusion is now brought to an end by the language of God, which is universally intelligible and the only means of mutual understanding among men. And the church is the place where that miracle happens. This very day in Pentecost, there were people from different lands and different languages. And these 3,000 that were saved, you can imagine, were probably from complete different backgrounds and Jerusalem. But they were brought together because they had the language of God. We are a church. We are a congregation. We have different backgrounds. Some of us have similar backgrounds. But we are all different people. May the Lord bless us to have the same language, the biblical language, the biblical heart, that Christ would be our Savior and our interest, first and foremost. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, we thank Thee for having used Peter that day, for having given them, Lord, that majestic sign for having given the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we live in a day in which we, we do not have these signs, but we do have, Lord, Thy Holy Spirit still. And we have Thy Word. And Lord, we pray that this would be the Word that we would gladly receive. Lord, that souls among us would gladly call upon the name of the Lord. Lord, we, we speak of these as, as activities of Thy people, but we understand, Lord, that we need Thy strength to do them. And even, Lord, to do what the church is supposed to do. And anyone can walk to prayer, but do they have a heart of prayer? And we can praise with our lips, but we must praise with our hearts. And so we plead, Lord, that Thy Holy Spirit would empower us unto these things from the repentance to the eating together, that Thou, O Holy Spirit, would call us, would call us, strengthen us to call upon the Lord to be saved and also to pray together as a congregation. Lord, may Thy Holy Spirit give us the power to, to receive the Word gladly and to believe as well as to sell what we need to sell in order to care for someone in need if we must do it, and to fellowship with one another. We ask, Lord, that Thou would be glorified as we come to Thee to be what we are called to be. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.